The Healthy Charleston podcast is brought to you by Made to Move Physical Therapy. Made to Move Physical Therapy specializes in helping you get out of pain and get back to doing what you love. We offer relationship-oriented, one-on-one, individualized care to all of our clients, and we believe in putting the patient's needs first. If you'd like to work with me or any of our other physical therapists at Made to Move, check out the link in the show notes and get 10% off of your first session. We have locations throughout Charleston, Mount Pleasant, West Ashley, Somerville, and Daniel Island. Don't waste another day stuck in your pain. Follow the link and schedule an appointment today. Welcome to the Healthy Charleston Podcast, where we help you take ownership of your health and fitness. My name is Hannah, and I am here to be your source of accurate health and fitness information while spreading awareness about all of the different health and fitness resources available to you in the Charleston area. Be sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. I hope you enjoy the show. Thanks for tuning in to the Healthy Charleston Podcast. On today's episode, I am talking with Dr. Rachel Heller, who is a made-to-move physical therapist and a yoga instructor, and she helps her patients get out of pain, rehab injuries, get back to doing what they love without fear, and ultimately just helps people get their lives back. And today we are talking about why our words matter. So we work with a lot of patients who have been through the ringer of the health and fitness industry and who have been told everything from you have the spine of a 90-year-old to don't do that, it's bad for your back, oh, you're causing damage to your back, yada, yada, yada. We'll talk through a lot of examples. And we're here to talk about the actual powerful negative effects of words and the language we use as healthcare providers and as personal trainers, fitness instructors. So we know that the language we use has a huge effect on pain perception and actual outcomes, yet it seems like our industry is full of negative and harmful language. So what's the deal with that? Rachel and I talk all about this from our point of view, what the research says, our patient's stories, and what we can all be doing differently. Now on to the show. Rachel, can you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Dr. Rachel, and I work at Made to Move at our downtown location, and I think that you know, this topic is really important, so I'm excited to get into it today. Yeah, so I think, I know we were talking before, like this topic is something that I've gotten increasingly more passionate about, especially since like being an actual PT, like working with patients and seeing the effects of this topic on patients. What do you think about it? I think that I have learned to appreciate this topic more as I have started working more one-on-one with patients with the way that our model is and with with shifting from you know a, a biomedical model to a biopsychosocial model and seeing how people will walk in the door with certain beliefs and trying to figure out why they think and believe what they do how that's affecting them and how it affects the way they move and then where our role comes into play with with helping them unlearn certain things that are likely outdated and likely harming them. Yeah, like I think a lot of times, especially like when it comes to people that have been dealing with chronic pain, we are more trying to affect 
how their life has changed because of their beliefs about their pain or injury versus like the pain or injury itself. It's more of like, I like, we're always thinking like, how can we, how can this treatment make this person more confident? It's more zoomed out. Like, how am I treating this person? So first I think we should just define like, what are we even talking about? When we talk about words matter, like what are we even saying? What do we mean by words matter and what's our experience with this? And like, why do we care so much? Why do we get so fired up? And I think there's a lot of trigger words that we have as made to move. And I think if you know made to move, you know those trigger words. Like as a team, like I've noticed, we kind of speak a similar language and that we have inside jokes about this stuff because we all feel the same way about it. Like we're like, oh yeah, like he just got nocebo'd. Like we say things like that. We say, just notice we say these little things and I notice other people start to be like, oh, but y'all don't really say things like that, right? Like y'all don't really believe that, right? Or like y'all don't really treat that way, right? And I'm like, yeah. so people are starting to understand like made to move gets fired up about the fact that words matter. And the reason for that is, is that our words, especially as healthcare providers, have a huge influence on pain perception, but typically healthcare and like musculoskeletal physical therapy rehab practices are full of threatening and potentially nocebic language. And so I think it's important to define what a nocebo is. So just some background information. So a nocebo is similar to a placebo, but it's a detrimental effect. So a negative effect, which is due to a negative expectation, a negative expectation of an outcome. So I think that I'm going to have more pain. So I do a negative effect occurs to a negative belief versus a placebo. Like I get the desired outcome or a positive outcome due to a positive expectation. I think that I'm on steroids. So I get stronger, um, which is crazy a little bit. Like it's very powerful. And I think you can use this power for good or for evil. But I think in the past few years, like, I don't think it's new research. I think we're just focusing on it more and we're realizing, especially like as we're learning how to treat in this biopsychosocial model, like we're learning how outdated the biomechanical model is. We're learning how much more this matters. So a nocebo is when you get a negative outcome because you expect or believe you're going to get a negative outcome. So why does that matter? That matters because pain perception is largely influenced by beliefs and negative expectations and poor outcomes are associated with negative expectations, fear avoidance, passive coping and depression. So all of those things are strong predictors that this person will have a poor outcome. This, this person, whether that be pain or um, increased disability, like what we know is that if I believe this certain thing about my body, that belief plays a big role in how I actually respond to treatment and also my like behaviors and actions and decisions. And those behaviors and actions decisions also play a big role in our actual experience. So perception dictates actual experience. I think that perception, it's like going back to placebo and nocebo, like if you think something's going to work, it's likely going to work. If you think it's not going to work, 
then it probably won't work. And you know, perception has a big role in how patients experience pain and how we experience pain. And a lot of things that we do in our sessions is educate people on their pain. And you know, I get a little bit nerdy with it by talking about different areas of the brain that have a role in how we experience pain. And you know, our, our prefrontal cortex and our cerebral cortex that control you know our attention and our thoughts. Like if those are negative, if, if our, our thoughts are negative then that's likely also gonna aid in this idea of having a, a fear avoidance and lower expectations and, and getting us stuck in this in this box of trying to avoid certain movements or, or not do certain things that we think will cause us harm because now we, we're, we have a negative connotation around movement and around how certain things make us feel based on the way that, that we're perceiving them. Yeah, so I think like just realizing this and like looking into it more and, and highlighting it when you realize that the words you say are a form of treatment like the words you say have as much power as whatever technique or whatever exercise or whatever thing that you're doing the words you say and the beliefs that the provider has that the provider then kind of like conveys or reflects to the patient those play a monumental role in someone's actual living pain experience and their behaviors. And I think just knowing that, it's like we learn in school, you know, how to how to be the best PT, we think. Like if they do if they have this, you do this. If you want to do this, you do that. And we learn all of these different types of treatment, but we we were missing this whole thing that's happening behind the scenes. And it's like the way that you explain what you're doing almost matters more. And the and what you explain is going on to them matters way more. And I, I just like viewing it as a form of treatment. Mm -hmm. So if you view it as a form of treatment, like I would argue that most people want to find the best healthcare professional, the best personal trainer, the best doctor, the best PT, the best dentist. Well, sorry, dentist. I can go to the dentist. It's been a while. <laughs> You're like, you don't want to go to the worst one. You want to go to the best one. You want to go to the one who's most likely to get you your desired outcome, the best result. So then you should go to the one that is going to use positive language, the ones that are evidence-based, the ones that don't instill fear, and the ones that don't use imaging as their first line of treatment for you know non-traumatic issues. If you get in a car accident or you break a bone, yes, you should get imaging. But we don't often consider the way that a doctor talks to us and the way that they, they explain their treatment or the way a trainer explains an exercise as a form of treatment. But now we know that that actually plays a huge role in, your, in the result that you get. Like, this is kind of a morbid way of thinking about it, but your provider could be unintentionally hurting you without you even knowing it. I think that they most of the time don't realize that they are not really harming someone with their words, but people take things to heart. And if they, if they see something and they aren't moving in the way that the coach or trainer is, and then they get hurt, they're likely to think, I got hurt because I didn't move a certain way or because I didn't engage my core or it was something that I did that made me, made me injure myself. You know, we've talked a bit about this and like what cues 
are important and like why we cue a certain way like is it just to provide feedback or uh, have a way for us to show all of our knowledge or are our words really assisting people in moving better and getting stronger and that's that's a that's a tough conversation to have also. yeah what you said of like are your words actually providing value because now we know like our words have the capacity to heal or to potentially cause harm yeah. not like i'm actually physically you know breaking your bone with my words like we're not saying that but that there was an article and it like it looked at where people get their beliefs and like friends and family play a role past experiences all obviously play a huge role healthcare providers play the biggest role and i think that's the most frustrating because i think we should be doing everything we possibly can to to make this person feel confident and resilient and get them a positive outcome but we are often the reason that they don't. And I think it's good that you say we because I feel like, you know, we are very conscious of how we talk to people. Sometimes I think almost to a fault where I'm so hyper hyper vigilant of what I'm saying where like I just got to get it out and and not be so worried that if what I'm saying is going to ne- negatively affect someone because I am you know, and we are trying to just give people their power back and instill them with the ability to not feel like they're constrained to moving in a certain way. What you were saying earlier about how we use education, and a lot of people just want to understand what is going on in their body. Because when people have pain, we educate people on pain as, you know, it's a warning sign, it's a, it's a threat. Hurt doesn't mean, or harm doesn't mean hurt, and, and hurt isn't always uh, equal to harm. But people don't know that they don't know what their body is saying and they don't know why they feel pain or or why something like running sometimes they have pain with it and sometimes that they don't and they want things to be more black and white and we try to educate people on like living in this this gray area that there's a lot of uncertainty around pain because it's really complex and there's a lot of things that that go into it so a lot of the times when we talk people off that edge of no you're okay even if you were told something about your MRI you know it might have something it might have you know a seat at the table in terms of what could be contributing to your pain or it might have nothing to do with it you might have had that smaller disc space for years and now it feels like it's a big deal because you're experiencing symptoms but it it might not actually have anything to do with with how you're feeling and and the pain that you're experiencing. So I think a big role that we have is understanding why people think the things that they do and helping them walk through those beliefs and then providing, you know, maybe a different perspective or a different way to look at the situation or their pain. Yeah, I think that's huge. Like a lot of our job is to figure out what they believe and why and how those beliefs are driving their decisions. And what you said earlier, like, I think we have to be so hypervigilant because we're in this weird, like transitionary area in healthcare where like our whole lives we've been taught the you know, pathoanatomic model, the biomechanical model. And so like 
that's the language that so many healthcare providers speak. We're, we're trying to speak a new language. So like when you're, when you mainly speak English and you're trying to speak Spanish, you go really slow. You're very careful with what you're saying. You have to think about it. And I think that's what, that's why we seem, you know, so hypervigilant is because we're trying to take all the things that we were taught and transition them into now what we know into a way that is going to affect this person positively. And like, if you are, if the provider is hypervigilant, it means the patient doesn't have to be because our words make this patient hypervigilant. If I can, knowing that my words are like a huge form of treatment, like I have to be very careful with them. I have to be very intentional with them because yeah, like I have to always be thinking about how is this person going to perceive what I'm saying? Like, what are they going to take away from this? Even something like you need to strengthen your back. Oh, so my back is weak. Oh, so my spine is weak. And I think we just always have to explain like, even, you know, when you get your MRI and you're like, oh, well, I have a, a disc herniation. Like, do they ever tell you that discs heal? Do they ever tell you that this is repairable, that this is healable? When you get a broken bone, like, they're like, yeah, like, we're just going to make sure that this is all lined up and then it's going to heal. Why don't we do that with, with more, I mean, we shouldn't be imaging these people in the first place, like pain, like imaging for just like chronic pain, you know? And they're like, oh, it's because this vertebrae is out of alignment and this hip sits higher than the other. And all of these things like this person has had forever. And you're, I mean, I think it's just a different belief system. Like you're, you're not believing in the body's like resilience and all those things. And you kind of have to go down a a big um, rabbit hole. But I think like, you know, those stickers that I'm going to mess this up, but like LGBTQ, like safe space, Mm -hmm. like in college, like a lot of people, a lot of professors like had those stickers. I think like words matter or like should be a sticker. Words matter, safe space. Yeah. Like (laughs) words matter. Like I am a provider that knows the effect and the power of my words. And like, I am going to give you the most positive language and like, you know, be accurate. Obviously we're not going to, if something's like really, really wrong, we're not going to be like, you're fine. Everything's okay. It's just not, it's just being very aware of like how your words could affect someone negatively. Even if you're not, you're not trying to do that. Yeah. And a lot of people who come in, you know, they either have a diagnosis, so they have a label, or they, that's what they're seeking, and then if they, and then if they get that from a, from a provider, like you said, they, they don't, sometimes, I don't like to speak in absolutes, but if, if they're not educated on, you know, disc herniations heal, it's just like, okay, here's a picture of your back, look at that bulge, have a good day, then you're just left to assume, you know, the worst of the worst as to what does this mean? What are my next steps? What should I avoid? Like we get that yes. question all the time. What okay. Should I not be doing? Yeah. Now that I have this injury, now that I have back pain, you know, putting that label on yourself. Now it's like, okay, I, now I have to modify the rest of my life because of this image when it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. Like they literally take it as our identity. Yeah. What are, what are some examples that you see that people, if people come in, especially I know it happens in the eval that like you learn all of these things, what are people saying? Yeah. Um, well I can speak firsthand. I don't really go to the doctor much anymore, but, um, 
when I was diagnosed with compartment syndrome, I had, I think I told you this, the doctor told me that I, if I didn't get this surgery or if I didn't stop growing, I would never be able to hold my future children. And every, like now, every time I experience this forearm pain, if that thought came to my mind, like if I keep doing this exercise or this activity, you know, I better be careful or else I won't be able, able to hold my future children. Like that's just, that's just crazy. Like that's just absurd. People who come in and they're like, I will, I was told I'll, I'll never walk again. Or I, I had a patient who came in saying that my ankles, you know, I was told that my ankles so messed up that, you know, if I keep doing what I'm doing, I'm going to need to get a replacement, an ankle replace, replacement by the time I'm, I'm 40. And I'm like, how can you like they, no one. I don't care what title you have. Like we can't look into the future. Like, Crystal ball. yeah. Like how yeah. how can you tell somebody those things? Um, my favorite is when people people come in and they're like, oh, like you're 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 in for it. I have one of the worst spines ever. Like I have the spine of a ninety year old, and trying. I think that's the hardest part. Trying to um, get people to not latch on to the image and and what it means. I think. Unlearning that is really challenging. I think sometimes it it's not possible. Like, I think, unfortunately, it's a mistake that can't be returned. Like, the compartment syndrome. Like, how much you know and how much you believe about the human body and the resilience and words and all these things. And, like, it still affects you. Yeah. Like, I, was, I had knee pain senior year. I was extremely stressed. I was working out a ton. And I was, like, getting into working out even more and like doing a lot of squats, doing a lot of heavy things. I was getting better too. It was like within the first couple of years of CrossFit. So you just like make a ton of progress. Um, newbie gains. Newbie gains. Yeah, exactly. And I was also knew I was going to go to PT school. So I was like, I demanded, I was like, what do you think is going on? What's going on with my knee? What's going on with my knee? And he like just gave me all these speculations. Oh, like a potential meniscus tear is like something that he said. And I remember like taking it back to someone and they were like, even if you did have that, like, you you could never confirm it unless you got imaging. And, like, even if you did, like, it doesn't really matter. But I still always, like, have that in my brain when my right knee hurts. of just, like, oh, I wonder if I actually do have a meniscus tear. Like, I wonder if this is going to cause – if I'm ever going to have to, like, stop doing these things or if it's always going to hurt. Like, I don't deal with knee pain, you know, a lot. But I just always have that in the back of my head. Like, I – even someone like had someone a couple weeks ago who came in and thought that he had to be standing a certain way, um, thought that he had to be squatting a very specific like you know feet shoulder width apart, toes facing forward. Thought he was over pronating. Like even these things that are kind of like a form thing, quote unquote forms. What I'm doing like oh if you're not you know squatting uh, if you have butt wink. If you round your back, if you overpronate, whatever that means, if you're internally rotating, if your knees are caving, like there's all these words that are out there that are like, oh, if you do this, you will get hurt. If you do this, that's not sustainable. And I mean, I, I think we see people all the time, like I'm bone on bone. I, I'm like what you had a patient that said, I'm, I was told I am a tough hip case. Yeah. Um, I'm told that. I'm never going to be able to squat or deadlift again. I should stop lifting. Running is bad for me. I had someone, I'm going to need a shoulder replacement in the next 10 years. What else? I mean, you know, my back is out of alignment. 
I have to go see a chiropractor every week to fix my back. My hips um, are out of alignment. Like that's, I think, been told to like every single person. And I'm like, at some point, if every single person has this, wouldn't it make it normal? Yeah. And like what Greg Lehman always says, we are pathologizing normal and our patients are paying the price. And it's really hard to explain to someone who has the lived experience, has the label, that there are a lot of people with this label that don't have pain. Yeah. Like the reason that we know that imaging, it doesn't um, have a linear role, like it doesn't dictate someone's pain experience, is because the majority of people have imaging findings, but aren't in pain or they aren't disabled. Or like, you know, they followed a bunch of, I think it was like military recruits who had forward neck posture or, you know, reverse C-spines or all these things or like degenerative disc disease, AKA normal adaptive changes. And five, 10, 15 years later, they didn't have any more pain. They didn't have more disability. Like there was no relation to someone's imaging snapshot and their lived experience. And so, but it's really hard to reverse what someone has already been told. Yeah. And it's hard to, it's hard to unhear and it's hard to unsee. And once you, mm. once you take that label or those words, then you kind of make a part of your identity. And instead of, you know, that patient, I am a tough hip case, even trying to reframe that in like, I like my name is blank and I am experiencing hip pain. Like this is a season. It's not a, a, a forever thing. Like if you say like, I, I, I have pain and you make it part of your identity. You're, it's almost like you're nociboing yourself. Like you're just, you're, you're believing that you're never going to get out of it. And then if you believe you won't, then you likely won't no matter how much hope that, that you get. You're like confirming over and over again. Like what we know about pain, and I think, what was his name in the E3 Rehab podcast? The Australian, Ben? Ben. Was Ben Darlow? Dr. Ben, yeah. Okay, great. He said it beautifully. He <laughs> said, pain is an alarm system, not a damage report system. And so many people think that pain is there to tell them that damage happened, mm -hmm. when pain is really there to tell you that there may be a potential threat. And it's like, hey, you need to go check this out. It's like your smoke alarm beeping. Right, it provides that buffer. Exactly. So when people think like, when you realize that it's, it's a, a damage and not a damage, sorry, no, well, <laughs> no, 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 sorry, take that back. <laughs> when you realize that it's an alarm system, anything that you do that confirms that that alarm should be there is like, yes, checking. Yes. Yes. There is a threat. So like, a potential threat. A potential threat. But if I am like actually believing that there is a threat, then I'm just further confirming that that pain should be there. Mm -hmm. Like my actions are now clicking the save button on the fact that there is a potential threat. So it's like we get this subconscious and con conscious interaction of potential threat. And like we get to decide if there is a threat or not. Sometimes like we have a, we, we obviously perception, like we play a big role in it. So if you're constantly telling yourself these narratives and you're making decisions and actions based on these narratives, like you are confirming that there is a potential threat. Yeah. And also like what we know about identity and I think it's cool, like how identity plays a, a big role in determining your habits. Like James Clear and Atomic Habits talks about this a lot. 
because the I we are so like um, I think it's is it confirmation bias or something like that or something in psychology that we're so rooted in our identity that we don't want to make decisions that contradict our identity. Mm. So like I have chronic back pain. I am a tough hip case. I have the spine of a nine year old. I have neck pain. I have a reverse C spine. All these things like that becomes your identity, and so then you start to make decisions based on that identity. And I think a lot of what we do is like help them rewrite their identity because they reach a point of suffering yeah. where their their life and their movement options get so narrow that they're like, well, I don't want this identity anymore, but I don't know how to get out of it. And it's almost like if when someone has back pain, like if you can typically like when someone deadlifts and Jefferson curls to an extent, they they're like, well, if my back was really messed up, like I wouldn't be able to do that. Like, I must be really strong and resilient. And that belief contradicts the belief that they're broken. And I think it takes like brick by brick, belief by belief, like stacking so high. And Rachel, the jogger like said this, that you have to completely like bury that previous identity or previous belief with a lot of experiences and, and beliefs that support your new identity for it to actually stick. Yeah. Yeah, and when people become so latched to this identity of them having pain, let's take back pain for example, and then you're here to tell them that, no, we could rewrite this story, then they're almost like, well, shit, who am I now without my back pain? This is kind of all I know. And then it it can be, I think it can be kind of scary just like anything. Um, If all you know is like, I sit down, I have back pain, I squat, I have back pain. I, like you were saying with those movements, like you will eventually learn to avoid certain movements because your system gets so hypersensitive. If you're, you know, reinforcing those, this is a threat, this is a threat, this is a threat. Now everything becomes a little bit uh, sensitized. So then you put yourself in a smaller box of, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to move now. And then your identity is, I don't go to the gym. I'm inactive. I can't go hang out with my friends. I don't have a social life. And then kind of being told how all of these things affect your pain experience. Because all of those negative experiences will also heighten your pain experience, whether you're aware of it or not. And so then being told, hey, let's rewrite this story and use our words for good, mm. it can be alarming for someone because it's it's something new. Like alarming and like a, I don't know how to do that and really needing guidance on how to get out of that. And they, they put themselves in this frame. It's like when we ask people their goals on, on day one and I, I, you know, I'll kind of pry about their goals and like, well, what would you do if you didn't have pain? No, like really, what would you do? And they're like, listen, all I want to do is get out of pain. I can't think of anything else. You know, let's move on. And I'm like, okay. And then you guide them through this new narrative that you're, that you're teaching them and educating them on and they're starting to take power back. And then they're like breaking through this frame and then they can see the light of, oh, this is what it feels like to not have back pain. I don't have to tie back pain to my identity. Now, now I can really see what it does look like to to write this new story, whatever that is. And, and I think that that's where we see like a really monumental turning point in our plan of cares with, with our patients. And I mean, it's one of the most exciting times for me when you 
show someone something, you see the light bulb go off, they they do the movement, they they pick up whatever, and they're like, wow, like I can do this. I am not in pain. I am strong. What's next? You know? Yeah, like when pain is, is no longer dictating their life. Yeah. Because what you described in, in the first scenario is like this cycle of you're just continuing to have pain control your decisions and oh, I don't do those things at the gym, you know, because it hurts my back. I can't sit for long. I don't like to drive for long periods of time, blah, 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 blah. Like there's all these things that happen or that you start to, to not do or potentially miss out on. I can't do yard work. I can't pick up my kids. And when they finally, like one of the best things that someone can say is like, oh, like I haven't even been thinking about my back. Like their attention has no longer been on their back pain. Their attention has been in their life. Like imagine the feeling of every 30 minutes, someone rings an alarm and is like, back pain, back pain, think about your back. Like talk about like productivity at work, gone. Um, ability to like flourish in relationships, gone. Ability to like work out and push yourself, gone. And we're talking like worst case scenario, but like, we see that, we see people that are dealing with that all the time. And they normally have been told stories of, don't do that, it's bad for your back, you must protect your back, move like this, it's bad for your back, blah, 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 blah. And like I had someone who was even, didn't do certain things in the gym where his back felt like it was working. Because it was like, well, any sensation in my back is a bad thing. And I think it's very like deep-rooted in our society. Um, and I think we are not the only society, but I think we're unique in that we very much fear, we fear back pain. So like you were telling me the other day, even someone was like, oh my God, I think I have back pain. It's like, if you have a headache, you're not like, oh my God, I have a headache, shoot. I'm always gonna get them again. You're just like, oh yeah, I have a headache. But it's almost gotten to the point where now back pain is a scary label. Because people think, oh, I have back pain, something must be really wrong, I'm always gonna have back pain. When like, what if it's just a, a headache, which is what they, they talk about in this, this podcast a lot. So we'll move on to some articles that we want to talk about and kind of like pre present the evidence. But the, the main point to drive home here is that our words can change the way someone thinks, feels, and acts. So our words have the capacity to heal or the potential to cause harm. And we have a lot of power as healthcare professionals as healthcare providers, we should, our goal should be to help patients get a positive outcome. And we know that um, a low recovery expectation, like I don't think I'm gonna get better and I think I'm gonna have pain and I think this is bad for me. All those things are a very strong predictor of having a poor outcome. So we can affect someone's beliefs, someone's effects play a huge role in their outcome. You have anything to add to that? No, that's very well said. Thank you. Okay, so let's talk about this first article. So peeling off musculoskeletal labels, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can hamstring me forever. A lot of puns there. Of puns. I never really loved the hamstring one. I'm like, I thought that was kind of a stretch. I, no honestly, I don't really. <laughs> like I, words honestly, can hurt uh, me forever. Yeah, I don't really, I don't really get it, but I still think it's, I still think it's funny. You want to tell us a little bit what this article is about? Yeah, so this article is about what we're kind of talking about today, why di diagnostic labels might do more harm than good. Um, and I think that this article brought up so many good points, it was difficult for me not to highlight the entire thing. Um, but just read the article, sorry, <laughs> and I just let's go. How much time do you guys have? 
It talks about, you know, what is a diagnosis? And a diagnosis is a label that helps to characterize and organize people's conditions within definable boundaries. Okay, that's great, but everybody is different and all humans are different. So there's a dark side to labeling people, putting a large group of people into one small category. And it implies that the clinician knows the specific tissue pathology that's causing pain or dysfunction when in reality accurate tissue or pathoanatomical diagnosis is often really difficult to to diagnose and label and and be like extra specific about those things um and one of the things i really like about this article is that it says that a label should be a constructive and dynamic guide that helps to validate an individual's experience and it's not an endpoint. just like pause on that for a second because that's a great a great point like most people do think that a diagnosis like sticks with them forever most people do feel like a diagnosis it does label them forever it is an endpoint. it's like i will always have this mm-hmm. so like how do we explain that I, and this is what this says like use a diagnosis to explain what they're currently going through which is why i think we're more like back pain knee pain shoulder pain yeah versus um, a diagnosis that's more of like structural or anatomical or implies that this is here forever. Right. And I, I think that I am versus I am experiencing statements are really powerful here. Um, but also kind of knowing when to label, if and when to label, and you know, using things that are a little bit more broad than, than more specific, like maybe, and even using words like, you know, hy- hypothesis, like I, I hypothesize instead of saying like, you know, I diagnose you with X, Y, Z. I diagnose, it's like I'm knighting you. <laughs> yeah, you have. <laughs> By the power invested in me, you have back pain. You have back pain. And they're like, no shit, I have back pain. Like, that's why I'm here. I'm like, well, that's what you're dealing with. Yeah, even like like back pain, like a label for back pain is non-specific low back pain. And this article, you know, talks about embracing the non-specific region. Like patients with shoulder pain, like I don't need to tell you if you have a super specific diagnosis or, you know, subacromial whatever, like you have shoulder pain, like sometimes that's that's good enough, or that, or that should be good enough. Yeah, like with even with a specific, like let's say we give a very, very specific diagnosis. A lot of times, like subacromial impingement, like there's a lot of, you know, that's not really a diagnosis anymore, because people that don't have pain or disability have that going on, because like that's the way that your shoulder moves normally. Again, right. pathologizing normal. Even something like, oh, you have an unstable scapula. Well, scapular exercises don't change the way that your scapula moves and they don't affect scapular stability. So like our treatment, typically, unless it's like cancer, ankylosing spondylitis, like these big red flags, like shoulder pain, we rule out things. Okay, you have shoulder pain. Our treatment's not going to change. Mm -hmm. So if our treatment's not going to change, why would we put this scary thing out there, this scary label that will have a detrimental effect on this person's outcome when our treatment and their prognosis actually shouldn't change, it's our words and their perception of the situation that does change their outcome. 
Yeah, I think that's a really important point. If the treatment is not going to change based on the label, then there's no need to try to put someone in a specific category, especially if it's going to make them feel more more broken. Um, this article also offers um, some suggestions as to when we should label. Um, one of them being is the is the presentation acute you know is it like we kind of talked about before it, do you have a fracture from a from a collision like certain cases where it's appropriate to get imaging just to make sure that there's nothing scary going on i think most a lot of people have been led to think that imaging is always appropriate when clinical guidelines actually say that imaging is contraindicated in a lot of cases, like we learn in school, all these clinical guidelines and like the audible rules and the neck rules and all these things. And I think they're, they're getting even more strongly advised against imaging and anatomical explanations of pain, which is unfortunately like what a lot of people are doing is, Oh, well you have pain. Like let's image when there's actually very specific guidelines that tell you when to image and when not to image. And it's typically like if it's acute or traumatic, when we even just like traumatic and you know, there's some, some things we can do to rule in and out traumatic. Okay. Image, but like you've been having back pain for, you know, whatever years, months, whatever. And there's, there was no like trauma that occurred. Then that effective imaging, just you seeing the image is going to give you a worse outcome. There was also a, a study on that. Like they they imaged a bunch of people. The people that saw their imaging got worse just because they saw their imaging. Wow. Like, what are we doing? When like so many places, like first thing is just like imaging. Yeah. When we know like it's, it can kind of be like, I don't think it's irreversible, but I think it, um, it really affects people like seeing their imaging when it doesn't play a role, a huge role. It's like you said, it's a, it's a drop in the water, has a seat at the table. Like it's part of the situation. It makes you, you, but it doesn't drive always pain or disability. So I just want to make sure we like had that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was a really good point. Number two is that our language affects the patient's attitude towards the injury. So saying something like you have a broken bone to be worse than saying like a crack in the bone, like how we perceive those two different words, broken versus crack. Number three, em embracing the non-specific regional label. For example, non-specific low back pain or shoulder related pain. Anything you wanna say on that? I mean, probably like a lot of things. I mean, I even thought, I used to think a broken bone meant like, meant like in half. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, that's horrible. And like, yeah, it's not great, but I think sometimes our language, like knowing our language can affect their attitude towards the injury. Like I think what I have to make sure I do is almost like not be too positive. Like I, I don't want to be too lax if there, especially is like someone who just had back surgery, someone who just had hip surgery, like someone who, who actually has like precautions and, and ACL tears, like a mm -hmm. healing tissue. Like I want to make you feel extremely resilient and confident and moving, but I, I still want us to respect healing guidelines yes. and like not, I remember it. I'm still kind of like working with this person. He felt so, so good after 20 years of back pain. Like we did, you know, 10 sessions, was lifting again, doing all these amazing things. 
when he went on his own, he felt so good that he did so much. Mm-hmm. And he like PR'd all the time and and just got a training injury yeah. because of it. And I was like, oh, like I should have kept the reins on or like made sure you understood, although you are very resilient and all these things, like there's still principles we have to follow. So I think right. that's where like we sometimes might give too much freedom. But I'd so much rather that. I'd much rather a patient push themselves too hard in the gym than have a lifetime of bad beliefs and disability. And restricting themselves. Yeah. Like, yeah. I can deal with you, you know, deadlifting way too often. Like, we can come back from that for sure. But it was just, like, interesting. I was like, oh, there is a, a middle in this pendulum swing. Yeah. And I think that that also comes with helping your patients understand, you know, what the roadmap looks like. Like, I, I also have some patients right now who are post-op and we're, you know, respecting the amount of time that we need to allow the tissues to heal and then load appropriately and then ease and guide and gradually expose ourselves into certain movements as opposed to going from zero to 100, diving in head first because, you know, there are smarter and less smart ways to go about getting back to things that we love to do. And I think having the, the guidance and the education on those things is, is also really important and a big part of what we do. Um, number four, de-label if low risk, like what Hannah touched on, you know, once the red flags are ruled out and there is a reason to believe that a label causes more harm than good or does not change the management. So if our intervention is not going to change, regardless of what this image tells us, then let's not worry about the image and just continue to progress as we would without seeing what's happening in our, in our back, because it, it will likely decrease our outcome, or, or, or it will likely give us a worser, worse outcome, more worse, less good. <laughs> Number five, if records require a label, such as like an ICD-10 code, then it is our job to define what it means and define what it does not mean, letting our patients know that a diagnostic code does not reflect the continuum or the biopsychosocial spheres of an individual's experience. I like that one. And then for us to remember and you know, the, the words that we try to shift into using into our vocabulary, using words like overloaded or, or something is irritated instead of things like wear and tear or degenerative. degenerative. Mm. Yes. Yeah. And in, in a second, well, there's another article that's very similar that offers like what to say instead which I think is really helpful. When you were talking, I thought like, so we know that what we say plays a big role. So just me saying just now, if you get imaging and you see your imaging, you're more likely to get a worse outcome. Just me saying that might make people have a worse outcome. Like that's how powerful it is. If I tell someone to expect a worse outcome because of blank, like that, I'm, I just know SIBO people. So what's actually been shown is, I mean, that actually has been shown, like people who have seen their imaging have been shown to have worse outcomes, which like, I don't think the problem is necessarily that. I think the problem is that they shouldn't be seeing your imaging if it's not useful. And then you talk about over-medicalization and all the money that we're spending and all that. But like, I think that's why like, you do have to be so careful because just me saying that could potentially play a role 
in someone being like, oh, well, she said that I'm going to have a worse outcome because I saw an imaging. Right. And then if you have to get an image being like, don't show it to me or else I'll get a worse outcome. I don't, I can't let my eyes see it. If I ever have to get like an image, I mean, first I'm going to be like, why are you imaging me? What's going on? But like, you know, break my back or something. I'm going to be like, give this to someone else. I don't want you to tell me what's going on. I just want you to tell me if there's things that are broken that are going to dictate the way that I need to move in the acute short-term post-op phase or whatever. Yeah, something that I use with my patients a lot or um, is Greg Lehman talks about things happening in our body being like wrinkles on the inside. And I use that all the time because I think it's absolutely genius. Like if we get wrinkles on the outside, then why wouldn't we also get wrinkles on the inside? Like pimples and skin tags. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, no wonder why your, your body on the inside doesn't look like it did 40 years ago. Like neither does your face. <laughs> I don't, yeah. I love that. Cause I think people really resonate with that. And like whatever, despite my best efforts, like if anyone has ever like I think I want imaging. Like sometimes I'm like, if that's going to help you, but I, I always give them like a disclaimer, like know that you are probably going to see normal adaptive changes that are normal. They're like wrinkles on the inside. They don't mean anything is wrong. Like I always try to pre-frame them um, to know that like, it's okay to see those things because those things are normal. And I just always like to switch it from degenerative to normal aging adaptive. Cause yeah. like you said, like, so if so much of our outside body like changes, why wouldn't our inside body change? Like it's, it's all physical. There's all of these things happening that there's a, you know, a lot of reasons and chemicals and things like you just wrinkles on your face. So just get Botox on the inside is what I'm saying. Okay. <laughs> no, don't do that. I mean, some people did never. Okay. Moving on. So labeling. So how do we, so we know when to label, when not to label, um, like what can we do if, if someone's like begging us for a label? Yeah, this is tough. Um, I really try to be as non-specific as I can. Um, and well, first I ask a lot of questions and I'll ask them, you know, wh why do you feel like you need a specific diagnosis or a specific label? And with me trying to be non-specific, while also trying to give them answers, I do try to encourage them to embrace the gray and explain the complexities that is pain. Because, again, like we are going to take a biopsychosocial approach. So we're going to be talking about a plethora of things that are going to be, that have a role and that are likely contributing to what's going on. And so we're not just going to focus on on the physical it's important and we will talk about it but we're not going to spend all of our time there so i try to preframe that as well by letting them know from the beginning you know not everything is going to be black and white there's going to be a lot that we won't be able to explain some things won't change our our, our treatment you know your feedback is really important so i want to know how you're feeling what your thoughts are how you're physically you know and mentally responding to these things and then we'll just take it one step at a time. P patients have a hard time, in my opinion, not looking at the entire staircase mm -hmm. in terms of like, okay, so this is where I am now. And like, if where I want to be is like 50 steps away, like, well, how are we going to get there? And I really try to encourage them to just take it one step at a time. The specific diagnosis just doesn't really matter that much. I, I do try to explain when I'm doing my eval, like, 
you know, I did this to test for this. I did this test to rule out this. It doesn't seem like this is going on or this is going on. Um, so I hypothesized that the structures involved are these in the shoulder or like these in the in in your leg or or something like that. Yeah, like I, I a lot of times, you know, if someone has shoulder pain, but they're able to move in these ranges of motion. And they're able to do these things, and like, okay, if something was really really wrong with your shoulder that like wasn't treatable with physical therapy, you wouldn't be able to do those things. Like the fact that you're able to do those things shows me more that it's about like a, an irritation or a sensitivity rather than something that really needs um, like surgical repair. Yeah. Because even, you know, like a, even, I mean, what we know now is like ACL tears and spontaneously heal, heal. Like we don't really quite know the power of the human body's ability to heal, but it is crazy and amazing. Even like bones heal themselves. Yeah. Muscle, you know, ruptures, tears, like heal themselves. So I also always try to like highlight the the resiliency and like the healing abilities of the human body. Like you get a cut, it heals itself. Like this is no different. We're just going to guide you and make sure we're doing the right things to to heal in a way that suits your goals and that gives you the you know the best outcome. And what you said about like emphasizing the staircase, I I do really think it's our job to be very encouraging and like always bring them back to what they have accomplished mm -hmm. and focusing on the step. Like I know you're not at the top of the staircase yet, but like look how far you've come already. I think it's our job to just like always be those cheerleaders. Yeah. Especially because sometimes it's easier for us to see the progress of our patients rather than for the patient to see the progress. There's a lot of different ways to measure progress, you know, subjectively, even just like feeling better or being able to do more. But if you're not feeling better, but you're able to do more, like I would also consider that to be progress. And sometimes just pointing that out to patients is like, oh, you're right. Like I am improving or I, I can do more. And I know I'm not hurting myself. I feel confident doing this. Okay, good. Let's keep going. Yeah. yeah. So wrapping up this label article, what should we do before we label, if we label? I think you should better understand your patient's beliefs, what they are, and how, how your words are gonna affect them. I think you should ask yourself, am I helping or impeding their recovery? And then this last one here, this, this, the article offers, you know, five questions you can ask yourself before you label. Who is the beneficiary of my words? So who is going to benefit from, from what, I'm, what I'm saying and how will this affect the person in front of me? Keyword benefit. Yeah. The next article, very similar. It's also called Sticks and Stones, but it's more of an editorial. Sticks and Stones, the impact of language in musculoskeletal rehab. So offers what to say instead of these typically like potentially nocebic terms or language. Um, and I do want to read just a quote from this article. Mounting research evidence indicates that psychological factors are more effective predictors of pain and disability levels than are pathoanatomical factors. It is therefore ironic that by continuing to focus on the latter, so by focusing on pathoanatomical 
clinicians may well unwittingly exacerbate the former. So it's ironic that focusing on the structural pathoanatomical is actually going to make the psychological factors worse and psychological factors are more effective predictor of pain and disability. And we, when we say psychological, like we know depression and anxiety play a huge role, um, beliefs, perception, even like I was reading one that was like pessimism versus optimism. Someone knowing, someone feeling like, okay, I can get past this and I'm resilient versus someone like thinking that they can't. So I wanna read, let me see, just some. So words to avoid, things like chronic degenerative, um, instability, wear and tear, even don't worry, bone on bone, tear, damage, trap nerve, lordosis, kyphosis, which we know those are normal things, mm -hmm. but like anterior pelvic tilt, pronation, those have connotations because of, I don't know, media, where people are like, oh, that's a bad thing. I'm like, no, everyone has anterior pelvic tilt and you also have posterior pelvic tilt and it's just like a way that your body moves. Um, bulge, herniation, the last one, you are going to have to live with this. How many patients mm -hmm. have been told that? Or like, you can never do this again. So alternatives, normal age changes. Everything appears normal. Again, normal age changes, age changes. Everything will be okay. So highlighting the positive, not the negative. One of the articles also talked about like what you said earlier, most people are told what not to do, what to avoid, when we should instead focus on what they can do, what they should be doing. Um, the normal curves in your back, bump or swelling. That is huge. Like bulges or herniations should be called bumps or swelling. And like the way that most people view like knee swelling, ankle swelling, whatever, any kind of swelling is yeah, Maybe not brain swelling. Right, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Is, uh, is typically less dangerous. Like, oh, you got some swelling in your knee? Like, great. But like herniation, people are like, ooh, oh my God. Like if I move in a certain way, like I'm gonna become paralyzed. So just like switching, like there's some swelling in your back. Like there's an inflammatory process, an adaptive change going on in your back. It may persist, but you can overcome it. Mm -hmm. And you may need to make some adjustments versus you're gonna have to live with this. I like that one. Like, Temporarily, you know, like your life may look a little bit different right now, but you're not, it doesn't have to be this way forever. I think is the biggest thing. Like it doesn't have to be this way forever. You don't have to live with this forever. This doesn't have to change the trajectory of your life. Hmm. On the list of things to try to not say, um, don't worry. I thought that was interesting. What have you said? Don't worry. You don't have to live with this forever. <laughs> what have you combined them? <laughs> No, it just says words to avoid. Don't worry. Because, I mean... I guess that assumes, like, well, then should I be worrying? Should I be worried? Yeah, just, like, saying the word worry. Yeah. It's just, like, everything is normal. Like, everything looks like it's going to be okay. But I think I say that all the time. Don't worry. Like, I think I say that all the time. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, that's just something to think about. The next article... So, this actually has, like, some pretty shocking quotes from real patients describing their experiences with pain that I want to, you know, read for dramatic effect, but also just to show like how much this stuff sticks. So this article is the enduring impact of what clinicians say to people with low back pain. And this is Ben Darlow at all 2013. Nice. So it does talk about in the beginning, like how people 
kind of arrived at their first experience of back pain because I think there's a fork in the road like you either experience back pain for the first time and you're like okay cool or you're like oh no back pain so participants arrived at their initial experience of low back pain with varied frameworks based on messages received throughout their lives that's a lot of messages like whenever I explain the the cup analogy or the you know, stress recovery, like all the things that play a role, I always put like beliefs or previous messages or diagnoses, like, because all those things stick. Yeah. And just like your mom being like, don't do that, it's bad for your back. Like protect your back, OSHA being like, oh, lift your legs, not your back. Like yeah. silly, your back can lift too. So these frameworks were further developed during episodes of back pain. Observing others' experience influenced their views about their back's vulnerability and their own genetic predisposition to back pain and ultimately the the threat associated with back pain. So before their first experience or during their first experience, what others said and other people's experiences played a big role in what if they thought it was threatening or not. And then after that, it was all up to healthcare providers. As soon as they went to a healthcare provider, like what they said, they took as gold. So I'm gonna read them. The doctor said most likely it was just a lumbar sprain. So when I get that sharp pain, I guess that I've moved in a way that's continually putting strain on an area of the muscle that I've damaged. My assumption would be that I was making it worse. So what do we know about muscle strains? They heal. Mm-hmm. I have a patient like this that 20 years ago had a muscle strain, was told that it was damaged, and now still feels like that area is damaged. Will will never be normal again. Okay. My chiropractor had explained his treatment allowed quote unquote aligning the back, assuming assumed his back was out of alignment whenever he felt any pain. Okay. So this is yeah. I he assumed his back was out of alignment again whenever he felt any pain in his lower back. When the first, the current episode happened, the only thing that was going through my mind is the seriousness of my misalignment in my back. I was really petrified. I got scared in the sense that I could damage my spinal cord or anything to such an extent that I might become paralyzed. Wow. Eat. Yikes. Oof. Big yikes. Big oof. Next one. I injured my back. I think they described it as a slipped disc. Something she also said to me, unfortunately, because you've done this, you have a very high chance of doing it again. Now I connect any pain that I feel around there to that. Next. Ooh, this is the absolute, this is horrible. Worse than the other one? I mean, they're all horrible, but um, I think this one might be the most shocking. Basically, all I've been told to do by physios is to work on my core. I've been tested by various different physios and Pilates and apparently I'm ridiculously weak. I had an abortion because I didn't think I could have a baby. I didn't think I could handle it, carrying it and having extra weight on my stomach. Wow. So like you have a weak core. Something that like very likely could be true. Like, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't need to play a role in your back pain, but like, let's say I actually like, you know, I have a weak core to the fact that I want to be able to do a 60 second plank I can only do a 30 second plank yeah. she had been told this so many times and she had also I'm sure had it had it related to back pain because this article is about back pain that she thought her core and her back were so weak that she couldn't have a baby 
So I, I just like thought that it was important to show. Yeah, that's a great example of how people's words had stuck with this woman. P- these people probably have no idea how their words have n- negatively impacted her to no. this extent. No idea. There was also a positive, there were positive results or like positive messages. So I went to the doctor after that. He said, no, don't. That's the worst thing you can do staying in bed. You should keep moving, keep walking, keep at it. So I felt like I should keep moving and keep doing things as much as possible. I do believe that you have to keep going. You have to keep moving and you have to, going to bed doesn't, definitely doesn't help it. So keep active. So like, not sure, like not necessarily like better or worse, but like because the doctor said something differently, this person was like, great, beliefs changed. I should keep moving. I should not stay in bed. There was a doctor that said stay in bed and so this person stopped moving. Um, another quote, lots of reassurance from the doctor made me feel like, don't panic. This is okay. You'll be fine. It's not the start of something awful. This resulted in some participants having increased confidence and less anxiety. So like just that one or maybe more than that, like interaction with someone like changed their whole life. Yeah. Which I also like looking at this. You can't really test for nocebos because it's like not ethical. Right. Like you can't um, intentionally nocebo someone. So all of this is like, um, what is it called? Pers- it's not perspective. It's the other one. Retrospective. Thank you. I was like, introspective. <laughs> That's not it. So it's just like it's just crazy. It's just that we know that words are so powerful, and they're they're. I don't think anyone's doing this on purpose. Like I just think we didn't we didn't know or. Um, a lot of our words were, were a lot of our words were rooted in inaccurate or harmful beliefs. Like even just someone telling you, like, don't lift with your back, or don't do that, don't round your back, or like, oh, I don't want you to squat because you're butt winking, or like, make sure your feet are in this position. I think oftentimes people think like people think going to a trainer means that the trainer is going to keep them safe. Mm-hmm because they're going to make sure they have proper form, quote unquote. Yeah. Um, and obviously we could do a whole other podcast on form and like what we know about form and how your body can move in a lot of different ways and be totally fine. But like you go to a group class, someone says, oh, don't move in this way. It's going to hurt your back. When you move in that way, you're going to be like, oh, this is going to hurt my back. Or when you have back pain, you're like, oh, I guess I moved in that way. So people, again, become hypervigilant. They become... Um, more hesitant to move like I I think this also applies to to trainers and fitness instructors yeah it's also a reason why depending on whoever's in front of me like the patient in front of me I will I I will I don't always demo exercises because I almost don't want them to see how I do it because I don't want them to think that they have to do it exactly how Mm. I'm I'm doing it um, like you don't have to move the way that I move because your body doesn't look like mine. Mm. So let's not put you in this, in this box. Like when patients do feel limited in their movement, I kind of describe to them like, you know, I want to, I call it their container of movement. And now I want to like broaden and widen your container of movement so that you can move freer in different ways without thinking that this is going to harm you or that you have to move in a certain way because 
or do a certain thing because that's the way it's always been done and that's the way you've always been moving and you know like doing something because that's just the way you've always been doing it is just not a good enough reason to continue to do it in that way and I think that this is also why it's important to understand where these beliefs come from because likely you know the patient might not even be able to remember where that came from like my mom saying sit up straight shoulders back sit up straight shoulders back and like your posture's failing you right right it must be that like and and i'm like mom like where did that like why are you telling me that because her mom told her that Mm -hmm. and then because her mom told her that and it's like well that's not a good enough reason for me to put myself in that box to move in that certain way or not move in a certain way yeah the posture thing is also huge like telling someone that they'll get hurt and that they'll put excess stress and wear and tear if they don't sit and stand all the time in this like you know certain way when like being in the same position for a while is often reason for your body to be like hey like let's move you get some uncomfortable signals that are like i'm gonna shift weight onto this butt cheek and now i'm gonna shift it onto this butt cheek but people are like stuck and then the way that they move like so many times the way people move in the gym they're like well i have to keep my shoulder blades down the back and i'm like that doesn't allow you to move the way that this movement requires you to move. Yeah. And like, why would you have access to, I'm like, if you can't see me, I'm like rounding my shoulders, rounding my back, slouching. Like, why would you have access to those movements if they were horrible for you? I always say like, there's no forbidden fruit of movement that we just like have access to, but we have to keep ourselves safe from. Like we're not, our bodies are not an active threat against us. Sometimes it's the opposite. Like we are the ones that are, putting all these beliefs and alarms and threats. Like you can sit however you want. You can move however you want. It just depends on the goal. Like a rounded back deadlift, different goal. A squat is a different goal than a hinge. I put my hands wider than someone else might on the bar. I put my feet wider. I put my feet more narrow. Like I put my butt further. Like there's all these variations in the way that we move. But we, and and the way that we look and the way that we talk and the way that we think and then we feel, but like people think that if you deviate at all in the way that you move, you're going to hurt yourself. It's all because of form and proper form. And my trainer is going to keep me safe. And so like, I personally think trainers are way more valuable than, than putting someone in a certain form. And like, obviously technique plays a role if you're trying to help someone snatch or squat below parallel, like. There's a most efficient way to do that, but it's about performance. It's not inherently injurious or, or safe. And yeah. um, I think there's a, a lot of trainers that nocebo their clients all the time. Yeah. And again, they likely don't realize that they're doing it. They probably think they're doing them more good by giving them these cues or trying to help them. And they likely, that's likely where they find their own value in a trainer. Like, you know, I, like maybe a trainer thinking like, oh, I, I feel better about my skills as a trainer, mm-hmm. the more cues that I get, because that's what I'm here for. I'm here to coach. I'm here to cue. I want this person to move a certain way. I would ask why is it you or is it the client in front of you? Like, you know, but um, like, what if the best way to keep them safe is to use positive language? 
Right, and just letting them set their feet up in a squat in a way that feels good to them. Like, you know, what feels most comfortable? Great, let's do that. Or like, where do you feel it? Awesome, keep going. How's it feel? Um, one of the- feel that in your back? That's good, that's where you should feel it. So you're targeting your back right now. Yeah. Not like, oh, you feel a deadlift in your back? Avoid, avoid. Like, what do you think a deadlift is targeting? What do you think your back is for? There's muscles back there. There's so many muscles. Like, why would you not want a strong back? I'm sorry, I cut you off. No, I was just going to say that um, sometimes when I get too fired up, I will send my patients or, or I will watch it with them, this video by Greg Lehman on, like, how perfect posture doesn't exist. And it talks about Olympians who, you know, pronate and how it was, like, the military that started, you know, the sit up straight, shoulders back and... And it is just, it is this amazing video. I saw it in PT school and I was like, this is amazing. And I think it, it gives people a lot of validation that they don't have to move a certain way, especially when they see high level athletes doing things, quote unquote, out of the norm. I mean, t sometimes when I'm going down these rabbit holes of movement, I think about people who do ultra marathons and I think about contortionists and gymnasts and people who just put so many of these incredible demands on their body because they can handle it and they've they've exposed themselves to this stress in an, in an appropriate way and they know that they can handle it and you know they, they see a lot of success like think about Simone Biles when um what was it what did they call it oh, the man. twisties yeah, yeah. when she like lost confidence in her ability to perform like that really negatively impacted her so much so that like she she had to take a step back which I think you know was the right call for her to do but again it just goes to show like your perception and your abilities have a lot to do with how you perceive you know your your own outcome and your own fate yeah so wrapping it up bringing it back like your perception plays a huge role in your actual experience, in your perceived, in your pain experience, in your disability, in your actions, in your behaviors. Like your thoughts, your beliefs, your perception plays a huge role in that. Healthcare providers and, and fitness instructors and personal trainers largely affect perception and beliefs of our patients and clients. So we, directly and indirectly, play a big role in our patients' outcomes. Our goal as healthcare providers, like all about, we're all about doing no harm, right? And getting our patients the best outcome. So I think in order to be practicing medicine or being a, an instructor, like having another human's health and trust in your hands, we have to realize and know and practice that our words are actually a line of treatment. We have to know that our words have the capacity to heal or the capacity to harm or potential harm and that they can be used for good or for evil. And we also have to consider like the validity of our statements, the purpose of them, who they're for, the possible negative effects that we're having, the possible worry that we're creating, the fear that we might be instilling. And we have to think about how that will affect this person for years to come. And like, it takes time. We're not saying overnight, like, obviously like we mess up like I, I definitely say things and I'm like oh I wish I wouldn't have said it in that way like I think we're always just trying to be better but we're always trying to to get our patients the best outcome and to help people be healthy and feel resilient and feel confident especially I, I think we 
a lot of our patients come to us feeling so the opposite of that. They feel so broken. So broken, so I need to be fixed, so incapable. And then they, you know, they put all these labels on themselves that they've gotten somewhere else. And we're having to, I think we get frustrated when we hear like trainers say things like that because I'm like, I am working so hard to make this person feel good about themselves and confident and resilient that like every negative thing you say to them takes away like five positive experiences that they've had. Yeah. Like we take negatives way more serious, not way more seriously, but like they weigh more than positives. So just that one negative that I hear when I'm out in the gym, I'm like, oh, like you don't know that I'm, I might be seeing this person like 10 years later and they're like, my trainer told me this and I have to like unpack it and rewrite it. And like, I love that we get to be able to do that. Like I, I love our job. And, I, I think we could just all be doing better to, you know, encourage our patients and use positive language, be evidence-based and instill, can we instill resiliency and confidence rather than fear? Right. Like trying to stop the problem before it becomes like a bigger issue. Like in having our trainers speak more positively, like let's try to not nocebo so that this doesn't become a problem long term in, in 10 years. Yeah, like the people that I, I see, like kind of membership, like continuity, um, oftentimes those people are like, yeah, like I'm kind of experiencing some back pain. And like, because I get to be their, like their voice in their ear, that back pain is not catastrophized and it doesn't last. We just like do what we need to do. We change their program. We figure out how we can, you know, get over this. And I'm like, I'm so glad that I get to be the voice in your ear. That's not like, cause if you have back pain and you're on your own, like you might someone that goes to this provider or gets this imaging or go you know blah 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 and then you go down this rabbit hole and you have all this unnecessary like medical spending and detrimental effects like I think it just it's a huge life trajectory change how you react and respond when like someone comes to you with pain or an injury and so I think it's just to, to wrap it all up our words can influence a person for many years to come for the positive or the negative. And we believe that it's our duty as healthcare professionals and fitness trainers to positively educate our patients on their resiliency and their ability to recover from pain and injury and to not instill fear. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> Everyone, thank you for listening. We'll put resources in the show notes. If you have any questions or any thoughts at all, feel free to reach out. To keep up with Rachel and I and Made to Move, all the links to social media are in the show notes below. Be sure you subscribe to the show. New episodes are out every Monday. Till then, have an awesome week. <laughs>